2: Today's episode is presented by Lloyds Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyds Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK.
3: The podcast will begin after this message.
0: Our army skills started our first aid business, but we found we were lacking the skills to grow it. Grow with Google's program in Denmark gave us a digital mindset. In less than a year, we went from teaching 360 people first aid to 3,200. Now we employ 34 more army staff. We are Mark and Anders of first aid in Denmark. Two of the 725,000 Europeans so far who found a job or grown their business with Google's help. By 2020, we will support one million more. Grow with Google. To find out more, search new skills, new opportunities.
3: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. We've got a great main interview this week and also a reasonably long podcast panel, so I'm not going to bore you with a long introduction. We're going to get straight into it. What we're doing this week is following up on a Politico series from one year ago called Brussels So White, which looks at why decision makers in Brussels don't reflect the population that they serve across Europe. The people we're going to talk to in this interview are Lisa Osborne-Ross and Goprit Bra. They're two people of colour in very senior positions in Edelman, the world's largest PR firm. Lisa runs the Washington DC office and is a regular visitor to Brussels, and Goprit was interviewed in our series last year, and he runs the Brussels office. He's British, and as he'll remind you in the interview, also European. So let's hear from them now. So I thought I'd bring you in because we love to have all different perspectives on EU Confidential, not just the politicians. But in particular, I'm trying to follow up a article series that Politico ran almost a year ago now, and we called that Brussels So White. And it was looking at why the EU institutions and the discussions here in Europe's de facto capital are really not including as many voices as they could, in- Particular ethnic minorities, and so as two people of color, I wanted to bring your perspectives into the discussion. So, first of all, Lisa, you working in an environment that let's say is a little bit more open. When I walk into the United States, I see people of all different colors, and I feel that there is a fairly advanced conversation about how you can use all of the talents of all of the people.
4: Absolutely.
3: Um, What's your impression when you turn up in a town like Brussels? How does it, does it feel different to you when you walk into these rooms and make your pitches and talk to politicians here?
4: Capri is smiling because he um, is recalling what I said last night, that I could feel, in a way that I have not, and I travel pretty frequently and pretty extensively, but I could feel in this city a level of testosterone, Uh, almost white male testosterone and even in in coffee shops in the few meetings that I've been in. So it's an interesting environment. Um, Your Brussels So White, I assume, is modeled on Oscar So White.
3: Yes, that's right.
4: And so if you look at what happened after Oscar's so white, the increase in communities of color, in representation, in movies, in theater, in literature has been exponential. And so I'd like to think that by raising awareness and profiling, here you will have the same type of reaction we've had in the States.
3: Now, Gopri. We spoke a year ago for that article series, and I was a little bit horrified at the way you were treated and some of the interactions that you were describing there. And I've got that sense that people here in Brussels, but it's fairly common across Europe, maybe not in the UK, but in continental Europe for sure, they have this sense that unless you're white, you can't really be a European I mean, I get it as a white Australian sometimes. Yeah. Like, where are you really from? Those sort of questions.
0: Yeah. Um, have you noticed any change in the last year? Um, I don't think I've noticed a huge amount of change. I think, first and foremost, you're absolutely right to call out the UK is an anomaly. I think it's very different, the experience that you have in the UK. The second thing I think it's important to say that we have made substantial progress on certain aspects of diversity. So for instance, on gender, we're doing a pretty good job. I think overarchingly, we're making huge progress in that particular discourse however on people of color i don't think we've made any progress at all i still too often feel and get asked the question as you rightly point out you know where are you from and when i say birmingham uh, people look at me slightly stargazed and they think alabama and i'm like where do you think birmingham (laughs) the uk it's like 20 minutes away you know i'm from around the corner and we are moving from what used to be a relationship of dominance to a relationship of equivalence but that's a long journey, and we've only just started that path. I think Brussels, in comparison to D.C., is probably still some way off on that journey. And there's still a long way to go to make sure that we take that train and really catch up. But I'm hopeful in the next 12 to 18 months, maybe with the elections coming up, that something will happen where the political parties and the Commission actively start to promote diversity and think actively about how are we actually going to have more people of colour in our institutions and in our organizations.
4: And not only having people of color in our institutions and in our organizations, but we had this really robust conversation last night at dinner about equivalency. Mm. And I remarked that the last time I'd been in Brussels was days before the 2016 presidential election in the U.S., where I went to Brussels, London, Paris, and Berlin. And if I had paid attention, I would have known when I left that Donald Trump was going to win because there was absolutely no confidence in any of those markets because you all had already started to see this wave of significant change. And for me, waking up that morning and what I'm experiencing now is our world, I used to think of it as our nation, but our world has been dominated by straight, white, Christian men. And the world is changing. Mm. And all of these other voices, the voices of women, the voices of non-Christians, the voices of communities of color, of gay, lesbian questioning, all of that. And so I think that we have to learn how to coexist. And it's the difference between having a person of color as your chap, as your friend that you work closely with, and then when you start to report to them. And the Mm -hmm. dynamics start to change. And I think that's Mm. what's happening in the workplace, but it's what's happening in our world. And when we do well, we coexist. We don't replace one dominance with another. Mm. Um, But we have to coexist, and we have to make sure that that cohort that I talked about, straight, white, Christian men, also feel like they have a voice at the table, but they have to understand theirs will not be the only voice and will not be the dominant voice. Mm.
3: Now, one thing that really strikes me is that there are a lot of political difficulties across the western world right now you were you were talking about how divisive recent us elections have been and we can talk about brexit as well here in europe So I think it's really interesting then that the UK and the US have these more advanced conversations on these issues, but people in continental Europe are maybe a little bit complacent where they look at London or they look at DC and they think, oh, these horrible places that are being torn apart by these regressive politics. And yet you have these much more sophisticated discussions on these diversity issues there. So I wanted to maybe chat a little bit about why you think that might be the case and what you think of this idea that prevails in countries like France. France and Belgium where it's a problem to ask people you know, on a census form for example what is their ethnicity like yep. does it help to be supposedly colorblind, which is the theoretical value system behind those right. ideas in France and Belgium or you know Is that actually just nonsense?
0: Yeah, well, I just want to start by saying, look, my identity is extremely complex. I grew up in a household of Indian parents. I ate Indian food. I listened to Bollywood music. At the same time, I watched RuPaul's Drag Race and I was a gay man that was trying to deal with my sexuality simultaneously whilst growing up in Birmingham in a very, very impoverished area of Birmingham called Sandwell and Dudley. So my identity is not one single Area. It's like a almost like an onion, right? You have to peel away different aspects of it. To not give me ownership of any aspect of the onion is basically denying me my right to exist. And I completely disagree that I have to pick and choose between an aspect, which colour is also part of, in comparison to, you know, the whole. I'm a gay man. I'm also an Indian man, but I'm also British. At the same time, I'm still European. So that's my identity. It's not one box, you can't fit me into one. And it's not as easy as fitting me into one.
4: And you are also a professional badass. I mean, the proof is in the pudding, right? If you look at the Washington office of Edelman, you look at the Brussels office of Edelman, we are two of the most profitable offices in the entire network. You are all of those things that you said, I am a woman of color. First and foremost, I am and that's truly my identity. It's how I see myself. I'm a businesswoman. I make money. Mm
0: -hmm.
4: I create Mm -hmm. careers. I create movements for my clients. I, with my team, make them very successful. We identify what their business goals are and we lead them there. How are we able to do that? By having diverse points of views, by having people who come from different parts of the world, people who come from different parts of, in, in my case, of the country, people who have different political points of view, people who... Learn differently, people who, God forbid went to a community college as opposed to a you know really exclusive four-year institution.
3: That is such a big thing in the us. Yes. I mean, it is a thing in other parts of the world, but I am absolutely struck where I went to my university because I thought it had a good course. Yes, and I suppose if the choice was between that university and one in a very small town in the middle of nowhere, I might yes. have noticed the difference. But mm-hmm. I just didn't have this idea that people might, give you or reject you for a job based on which university you went to. I, I mean, I was the first one in my family to yep. go to university. So I was just more like, oh, yeah, university is important and had no idea of all these hidden levers of power or these unwritten rules that you were or weren't supposed so to follow. So
4: you have a point of view then, given the background that you mm-hmm. just described, that is highly valuable to me because you will see things that other people in my office will not see that I might not see. And so we focus a lot on gender, we focus a lot on racial and ethnic diversity. I am certainly committed to all of those things, but it's also, and I think, you know, Goodpreet said it, It is a matter of bringing people to the table and allowing them to be their authentic selves, regardless of who they are. Mm And when you bring people to the table and allow them to be their authentic selves and to express themselves, you get the best work. You get the best work and your clients are happy. The people that you work with feel that they've had a productive and profitable experience. And it's a win-win for everyone.
3: And does it help that you're able to measure it? I'm not saying that you can't measure success in politics. You know, either you're elected or you're not elected. That's one measure of success. You
4: have to measure it, Ryan. You are. I'm so glad you raised that. What we have done in Washington is adopted the Rooney Rule. Where very specifically, I ensure that every slate that comes to me for approval has to have at least, used to be one, at least two people of color, because that's where I'm deficient in my office. So two people of color. Now to that's ensure. in terms
3: of when you make a pitch to a company, something no, like that? No, that's when I'm hiring. All oh, right, okay. That's when I'm
4: hiring. And so I need to make sure that, you know, Washington is a multicultural city. It used mm. to be called, I'm a native, and it used to be called Chocolate City. It was a bastion of African-American wealth and culture and intelligence and innovation and creativity, and it's changing. Mm. But I need to make sure that the people in my office reflect the community in which we operate and the community in which we serve.
0: And our challenges here in Europe are very different, as you know, at Brussels, is first and foremost, from a European-EU institutional perspective, it's not very diverse at all. And actually from a talent pool perspective as well. You know, it's not diverse. What we are diverse in is we are diverse on nationality, we have age diversity, we have LGBT diversity in this city. And the starting point for me is really drawing on that as demonstrating that we're going to be a diverse environment to work in. We have a lot of work to do, from a Brussels marketing perspective through conversations like this to actually get people of colour to actually engage in what the opportunities are in Brussels across the entire region. And we need to have a very, very strong catalyst for this discussion. So I don't think it's just as easy as a couple of podcasts here and there, but each member state needs to think actively of how do we incentivize people from these communities, like the community that I came from in the UK, to come forth and want to be part of, of the system. Because now we can talk about the European elections. I, w- I didn't think
3: that would be my next question, but there's a 30 million euro advertising campaign that the institutions are running. They face a turnout problem for eight elections in a row. Mm. Every single time there's been a direct election to the European Parliament, turnout has dropped. It's critically low. It's down to 30% in the Eastern European countries, mm. which also happen to be the least diverse in terms of mm. population. Uh, and so it strikes me that you really would want to be targeting people who don't feel as connected to the political system and maybe that would be minority
0: communities some of the time No, absolutely. And actually, just to kind of say, you know, we talk about Eastern European uh, lack of diversity, but my husband, as you know, is from Poland. and, And the amount of Ukrainians that have come into Poland in recent years has actually made it, even though it's white immigration, it is a very diverse landscape in that sense. But we just don't talk about it in the same way as the Syrian challenges or Syrian issues. But on the broader challenge about how do you actually get people to come out and vote. You have to have campaigns that resonate. You have to have connections. But importantly, and again, some of the conversation that Lisa and I were having yesterday, you've got to do brand marketing. At the end of the day, these institutions and these individuals that we work with or work through need to think about their own brands. But there are tactics and abilities out there today as a result of the changes in our environment, as a result of social media, that allow you to really penetrate and get people's messages to cut across but you need a brand you need to be able to sell that brand and you need to have a very clear narrative around what that brand stands for and i think at times we have struggled with that in europe we've struggled to articulate in a very short clear synopsis what that brand looks like some of the biggest brands in our world today are are, you know political leaders trump is a brand yeah let's bring you back in lisa (laughs) donald
4: trump is a brand he is without a doubt one of the most effective marketers that I have ever experienced. And I think he Mm. has changed the landscape for not only in uh, U.S. politics, but globally, Mm. how people run for office and how people assert themselves and how they identify their base and how they stay with their base. I think so much of what we are seeing right now is we talk about it about race, we talk about it in gender. I think we are experiencing a culture war. I think there are people who are on this side of an issue and then there are people on this side of the issue. And regardless of their race, their gender, their sexual orientation, where or how they grew up, they will always see this point of view this way and they will always see. And and that is the real problem that we have this culture war that we are trying to break through. But that's
3: dangerous, really, isn't it? This idea that people can't change or that a democracy can't change, that we all have to be locked into some way of thinking or some identity. And
4: you know what? That used to be a positive thing. To evolve is remarkable. To learn something new and change your point of view because you've learned something new because you've had a new experience. The flip side of all of this conversation is that when you create environments where people are afraid to say what they think because they're afraid that they will be called a homophobe, they'll be called sexist, they'll be called racist, and they are asking a question. They're saying, I don't understand. I'm trying to figure this out. I think this is offensive, but I'm not sure that it is. And so we have also created an environment where people are afraid to say anything because they're afraid of being uh, labeled. On this point of... Diversity, it is really important again to not flip the dominance. I said it once, and if I don't say anything else, I want to make sure that that point is really, really clear. I sent off a team to do a multi million dollar pitch. They were all women. And as we were preparing, I worried, oh my God, we've got an all female team. Because isn't that the same as having an all male team? Mm -hmm. Isn't that the same as having an all white team? Now, what was interesting, the feedback from the client was I loved having an all female team. But we could have gotten a different reaction. And so I think we have to recognize that diversity, it has to thread through. It's not just diversity when we want it to be diverse and it works for us. We have to recognize, again, that there's room under the tent for everyone to come in and to express themselves.
3: Have you experienced in your own careers that you've made a difference to someone else's life where they've been able to notice that you were there and they got inspired by you? Or is that a general belief that you also have that when you can see someone else achieve, who looks like you or talks like you or comes from the same background as you? Do you think that makes a difference
0: in the next group and how quickly they're able to come along?
4: There's a phrase, if you can see it, you can be it.
0: Yeah. I completely agree. And actually, there's different things. I think one of it is if you can see it, you can believe it, and you can actually think that you can actually achieve it as well. But there are different things that have worked in different markets at different times, right? So in some markets and in some political establishments, quotas have worked. Very, very aggressive, some might argue. I will always remember, goodness gracious me, when it first aired on the BBC, you know, back in 2000, whenever it was now, when it first came on TV, people like me were on the TV screen Mm -hmm. and you know we're not a small percentage in the UK but finally I saw them and I realized oh my god if they can do it I can do it too. We all did that
3: with Queer as Folk. I mean, I was growing up in Australia at the time. But that was... I mean, you'd seen gay characters on programs before. It's not like I'd never seen a gay person, although I didn't for the first sort of 17 years of my life. And then when you saw there was a whole television program about it, you know, it wasn't even the best quality, I would not say. But it's affirming.
4: Exactly. And so
3: you went there and people watched in groups because you were like, wow, I'm there for the first time. Absolutely.
4: I I think you, Capri, had a similar experience. But when... um, I was at my previous agency when I was named Managing Director of the Washington office. I was the first woman of color, the first, in this case, black woman who had ever held that position. And I don't know if you feel like this, but I was a little uncomfortable with playing up the race part of it because I thought to myself, I have advised presidents, I have advised CEOs, I have advised foreign leaders. My race is a part of who I am um and it's the thing that I'm probably most proud of, but professionally, you know, I, I don't know that I, I wanted to lead with that. And then I was overwhelmed with the number of cards, letters, flowers, gifts that I got from black, Latino, Asian men and women nationwide who said, my God, if you can do this, then then I can do it. And then when I was named the president of Edelman, the same thing happened all over again. And so it is probably one of the things that I will go to my grave with in terms of being most proud, that I know that my life has mattered. For me, I know that my skin color and my gender uh, has mattered and it is about I know my power Mm. as a woman of color who is highly competent and I think that's the other thing that we have to do we have to know our power and we have to use it you have to use your power at the polls you have to use your power at the polls you have to use your power in the newsroom you have to use your power in the boardroom we all have this power
0: we all need to make sure that we are not just talking internally to our own but also as lisa rightly put it to the other you know in this world of um, challenging uh, politics challenging issues we need to make sure that we're forming as many bridges as we possibly can and not isolating because this conversation should not be about isolating others it should be really about explaining as lisa rightly articulated we are here when really not going anywhere, I'm European, I am British, but I am also European, I'm really not going anywhere. And at the same time, how do we now build a better future, which despite the politics of next year, whatever might happen in the European elections, or whatever might happen in the Commission, we're still going to have to cohabit together, we're still going to have to live in this environment together. So how do we then make sure that we are living positively with uh, all of us trying to figure out a positive consequence for each and every one of us.
3: Gopreet, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Lovely, thank Ryan. You.
4: Thank
3: you. You were listening to Lisa Osborne-Ross and Gopreet Bra. Now it's time for the Brussels Brains Trust. And now it's time to welcome back the podcast panel. Hello, Alva Finn. Good morning. Good morning, Lena Eberhurst. Good
2: morning, Ryan. Good morning, Alva.
3: Uh, we've got a uh, good old fashioned EU WTF to kick the discussion off with, more of a US WTF, actually, Hillary Clinton inserting herself back into European political discussion by suggesting actually that EU leaders need to get a grip on migration and that if they don't do that and say that there isn't enough room for Europe to give more refuge and support and to say that Europe has done its part, then there's gonna be continued problems with right wing populace on the continent. I wanted to get your reaction to this, you know, extraordinary insights that Clinton has been able to offer Europeans. I'm not, I'm not sure we've thought about this up until now. What is your reaction, Lena?
2: It looks to me like, you know, when you have the bus and you're running behind the bus and you're, you're missing it and Mrs. Clinton is just wants to go back again to the media because we haven't heard from her for a long time and couldn't be better subject than talking about migration, talking about Europe, talking about populism. I believe that it is really interesting that she just got all these headlines, something for somebody so eloquent like her, very well known to be pro-human rights, pro-women rights, to come out and say something like this. It's um, it's a little bit shocking.
3: And Alva, isn't it, you know, maybe technically correct at some level, but also an issue that leaders actually addressed two years ago. Like, the numbers are really down by about 90%, aren't they?
1: Yeah, and I also think that it was particularly unhelpful that she said, oh, you you just need to make it clear to people that you can no longer provide refuge and support. But, you know, that would be... in direct violation of some conventions that we've signed up to everybody signed up to around the world so you know what's the solution and she didn't really go into that and I'm not sure if she's very up to date on what the European leaders are doing so I think that's why it was just unhelpful to me mm-hmm. it was kind of like Just this throwaway comment, then also, yeah, something that would violate the refugee conventions. And then also, what's the result of denying refuge to people who need it? They stay wherever they are, or they overpopulate countries that already have a hard time and have many more refugees. And the thing is that some European countries, maybe they are full, right? But... Mm. The rest of them are Jordan not. Jordan is more
3: full, for example. Yeah. Lebanon yeah. is more, more full. full. Exactly.
1: Yeah. I think it's just, you know, how much are we willing to, for example, save the European project by denying refuge to those who seek it. And the other thing is that many people in Europe feel solidarity with refugees, and there's just a total ignorance of that as well. You know, should we give in to populists and the message that they're sending, or should we be proud of what we've achieved already and and the people that we've supported? And yeah, she's not speaking for people like me, who, Mm. in fact, you know, always admired Angela Merkel for what she did. What I want is more solidarity. I want more... Member States to share the load. I know it's politically unpopular to say that, but, you know, I think history will not judge her well for saying it. Well, Mm.
3: maybe one of the things she was thinking of, and I don't want to put words in her mouth, but maybe she was thinking of a country like Italy, where they have been forced to shoulder an unfair amount of the burden of people coming into Europe. And obviously they do have an inflamed populist discussion right at the moment. However, it seems to have backfired a little bit because the Alternative for Deutschland party immediately created advertisements based on her comments, Mm -hmm. effectively saying, "Look, even Hillary Clinton agrees with us," Mm. which presumably was not the point of her comments.
2: Which makes her so much like Mr. Trump, no? They're both agreeing on that because they have as well. Their the migrants are on their borders. I mean, what makes her different from him? No,
1: I just don't don't like this. Tough call. It's the human cost of making these decisions, and like, there's no. There's just nothing in her comments that looks to that. You know, hmm. h- how do we beat populism? Do we fight it with their rhetoric or do we stand firm on our values and what I thought her values were? You know, if you don't stick to your values, what are you doing um, and well, one who are interesting,
3: you? One interesting thing I read the other day, I literally had no idea about it. It was looking at the efforts to extend the U.S.-Mexico border wall. And both Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama voted for the first part of the wall in 2005 6, the first 550 kilometers of <laughs> it. I was like, hmm, I was not expecting to, to read about that. And anyway, why don't we move on to another interesting report that comes from the Carnegie Group? And that is into the emergence or the nuances of a conservative civil society. And how do you grapple with that? The fact that civil society isn't just a collection of left-wing activist groups, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. And what does that mean for the future of that civil society space in Europe and around the world? Did either of you take a look at the report?
1: I did. Yes, it was very interesting because I think it's one of the first times that I've seen a study that just focuses on the effect and the impact and the influence that these organizations often have. Really interesting selection of countries that were picked. So, you know, conservative civil society propping up very authoritarian governments in places like Thailand and the effect that they've had in the United States, Poland as well, Ukraine. And yeah, what everybody thinks, I think, classically of civil society as being quite left-wing, but that's actually not true. And we know that there are lots of conservative forces with a lot of money that are now funding these in the same way that maybe liberals were in the past. And what effect is that having? And I think one of the things that I noticed was, you know, use different tactics to left-wing civil society who usually play a lot by the democratic rules. Mm-hmm. And the effect that that's having is, you know, people are willing to say very nasty things and employ very nasty tactics in order to get what they want and speak directly to people. And what does that mean for our democracy? It was very interesting.
3: I wonder what is the borderline between genuine grassroots civil society and some kind of front group, for example, or a religion? You know, religions have traditionally often had almost state-like or sometimes very precisely state-like roles in a society. So I think personally they're probably in a different category to, you know, Mm -hmm. other civil society organizations. And then there are a lot of front groups in all democracies and non-democracies alike, uh, organizations that sort of give the impression of being a voice of the people. Mm -hmm. And actually they're just funded either by a large company or a rich individual. And I'm not saying they shouldn't have a voice in society, but I wonder whether that allows them to be classified as civil society when when that is the kind of nature of their support.
2: Mm. But we're seeing so many of them nowadays. I would speak in my part of the world where the most organized civil society organization ever was created is the Muslim Brotherhood and when you say civil society it's a scary word it's like a concept like oh my god this is opposition to the government opposition to the leadership and they were funded as well by the private sector and by the rich people they used the religion say dialogue and conversation and they used as well mosques and small community grassroots reunions eventually this is preventing us from having any kind of these affront, let's say or the middle political groups or movements because we, they had don't a monopoly have, on exactly. that discussion. We don't have any differentiation between what is left and what is right. We just have either you are pro the government and pro the leadership or you are now part of the Muslim Brotherhood. That's why I, I so think it has... So they're almost
3: the opposition and they're not actually civil society.
2: They have placed themselves the opposition. But strangely enough, Ryan, they really know how to talk, as you just said, what the people want to hear and i can see that as well a few months ago i was in south america and i have seen as well the churches are doing exactly the same in so many rural areas in small villages where you would see a bunch of people 50 or uh, 20 people sitting together and there's a priest preaching them and screaming and it's a very emotional and they are all very well organized and funded So the report is very interesting. I didn't read it all. I just read the summary, but this is historic and this has been going on for a long time. And we always underestimate the role of the church and the role of the religion because we think like everyone is liberal and everyone is like we don't believe in anything we most of the people are uh, god is something special to us but really on the grassroots level it is uh, winning a huge big space
1: well i think the the thing is that people need to recognize that there is a pluralism in civil society it's not just left-wing it's not just right-wing you know people are setting up civil society to do a range of different things sometimes it's just i don't know yeah like basketball playing or something like that it's everything and if you allow people to fill in the space for example the Muslim Brotherhood then maybe something needs to be done in the middle so that that voice isn't too loud and I think what we found in Ireland and I I would say we never underestimate the influence of the Catholic Church in Ireland. We've had quite a shadowy conservative civil society in Ireland for quite a long time funded a lot by American religious fanatics and they have intervened in lots of our recent referendums and it amplifies their voice. And we know for the recent abortion referendum, for example, everybody was very frightened. The polls were saying very different things. And in the end, it just went on to show that they really didn't have the ground that they appeared to have. They just had a very strong voice because they were organised, they were funded. So yeah, I think civil society isn't always going to serve the interests that we want them to, but maybe that's a good thing and and maybe it, it creates discussion, and Mm. and it it defends at least the beliefs of some people.
3: Mm. Well, it depends who the we is in these discussions, I guess. Uh, One, I got into a Twitter fight recently where I had made a comment, and I didn't intend it to be a a large discussion, but clearly I turned it into one, and it was around a German environmental NGO that had had some funding cut or proposed cuts to its funding, And the suggestion was that that was because it was critical of the German government's policy on diesel cars and around the Dieselgate scandal. And I'm not in a position to say whether that is why they lost their funding or not. But I made the point that, well, surely if you were relying on government funding and you were directly criticizing and lobbying the government, you know, you might be the target of discrimination, but you can't really be surprised that there might be some backlash in that regard. And I said that because there are a lot of NGOs that don't have a very diverse funding base in Europe. They become to be reliant and sometimes even addicted Mm. to either government or EU money. And my point was in the long term that hurts the cause because either it becomes detached from what grassroots supporters actually want or it leaves you vulnerable to just being wiped out to an act of aggression by a government. And so surely what you need is some kind of smarter, more diverse funding mix if you're going to be a sustainable NGO.
2: Definitely and by having different conversations and different objectives and different missions not like we just we would repeat what the government want or what the European Commission want and this is how we get our funding.
1: It's interesting that you very much hit because I'm from civil society um, you've hit on something that absolutely is a challenge for independent civil society and I think some of the research that we were seeing looked into that you know where are the funds coming from and you're absolutely right we do need to diversify our funds but in the current climate there is shrinking space for civil society and you just have to be able to rely on sometimes the commission funds and you're right people do get a little bit and they are also swayed by commission policies and you're applying for grants on the basis of the programs that the commission has asked for Mm -hmm. and maybe they're not in line with what your mission is but you need funding so you need to do it and but it's a tough world out there and what I would like to say is what happens if we don't have independent civil society it really at this authoritarian creep we see across the world in places like Egypt, where they've brought in civil society bans from getting foreign funds, etc. It makes for a very dangerous environment where people can't speak up against things that they think are wrong. So I think that in this case of the German environmental NGO, you know, you should absolutely be able to criticize a political decision that's taken around your funding. But then what you need to do is go and diversify. And
3: then I guess my one last challenging comment, and it's a contrast between other civil society spaces and the United States, is the US basically rarely has any problems having a vibrant civil society because people are willing to give their own money to support causes that they believe in. Maybe they're enabled to do that by a lower set of tax rates compared to some European countries. But it does always shock me that European organizations don't sort of look to themselves a bit harder and think, well, how do we convince people to give us money? How do we do more of what individuals would actually like to see happen and then get money from them as a result you know there are pretty successful fundraising drives for medicines on frontier for example um, i'm sure your employer save the children does fundraising as well so it's possible and i i wonder why europeans don't sort of have that funding base more
1: but it's on conversely a lot of people say why are you spending so much on fundraising it's a big criticism of many of the very big organizations that they're becoming businesses and then you're kind of damned if you do damned if you don't and some of them yeah. are just very small they should be supported maybe they're focusing on the rights of roma people or yeah. you know there has to be a plurality The EU is quite good at funding a plurality of civil society, but maybe they don't necessarily like when they're criticised. But this is a strange town because the EU actually funds civil society to sometimes make critiques about its policies. That's why I think we need to diversify funds. But the pot and the amount of money, the foundations that are out there, you know, it's ever smaller and smaller, and in the US, it's it's getting a lot smaller. So I really think that the end of this discussion, no matter who's coming out of the woodwork now, we still need to support independent civil society to make sure that they can, you know, shine a light on things uh, that are happening now because it's a very dangerous environment. that's what, what if you had
3: something like attacks? I know that's a horrible word that people don't like to use, but. It works for things like public broadcasters sometimes. You know, like I personally, if someone told me I had to pay 1% extra tax Mm -hmm. and that money went to an independent commission of experts that were in charge of funding of civil societies, I would say, hey, that's a clever system. Is that something that could ever be foreseen in countries that are based on a bigger state and where people do want government to be having a role in the NGO process?
2: I think it all takes as as well about transparency and how they communicate where the money was spent and which projects. And I, I would do that, definitely. But just going back to a point like Alva just mentioned earlier about the big organizations and their fundraising and the percentages they take for admin and the big salaries that they give not you of course you're funded by Bill Gates Foundation I know that but no
3: but it's, it's legitimate like I interviewed David Miliband who I think is a very eloquent person who's made a lot of positive contributions across a range of areas in life and he gets paid more than half a million euros a year to run the International Rescue Committee yeah I think you can get someone for less than that, frankly, who can do a really good job running the International Rescue Committee. Well, I think that I would talk about this all day long if I could. Yeah, but me too. <laughs> you have to get to your respective offices. I can see editors calling me into meetings. So that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thank you so much for joining us. If you haven't already signed up to our community, go to politico.eu forward slash registration. Tick that EU Confidential box and we'll deliver the podcast to your inbox every week and you get invites to any podcast related events. As always, podcasting is a team effort. So big thanks to Anja for Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin.